The word says we're called to make disciples. We're growing in the word of God. Jesus Christ was sent to be our saviour. This is the Bromley Town Church Podcast. We pray God speaks to you through this message, blessing you as you live out God's word. Stream or download other sermon podcasts via the Bromley Town Church website or by using the SoundCloud app. Head over to BromleyTownChurch.com. And today we're looking at really, how should I then live? But before we get to that, there's a few things that I want to say. Certainly, as we've been talking about this message, uh, we've looked at the power of the cross and we've seen that the power of the cross is this. This is the place. The cross is the place where sin is dealt with once and for all time. It's dealt with. It's sorted. That is where it happens. We've seen that their sin actually is a force. It's a power. It's a grip that it has upon people. And you know what? Because it says in the Bible, all have sinned, there is a sense in which every one of us has in one way or another felt that grip of sin, that tug of sin upon our lives, causing us to walk in ways that we shouldn't. And of course, sin, as we sin, it has an effect upon our lives. And the effect that it has, some of the effects that we've certainly seen is, first of all, separation from God. You feel distanced. You feel distanced from God. Uh, Sin, because we sin, there's a sense of enslavement. It captures us. It binds us. It holds us. So there's an enslavement. And there's also a hardening of our hearts that comes. We become actually more used to sinning rather than more used to getting away from sinning. It hardens our hearts. It's like a veil that comes over our lives. And equally, of course, sin causes deception, which is literally a veil. It causes us to think, oh, yeah, this doesn't really matter because we haven't known the truth. And truth is what actually sets us free. But praise God, Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5 remind us of this. But God is so rich, so rich in mercy And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. The power of the cross is not only that it conquers sin, but it removes the harmful characteristics of sin from our lives. Separation is removed because the cross brings reconciliation. The shame of slavery is transformed by the freedom that we get from Jesus Christ. The hardened heart is exchanged for a heart of flesh. And deception, the deception that covered us, is revealed by the truth that comes through God's Word. You know, the more I look at the cross and I see the power of the cross, the more excited I become by it because it truly frees us. Yes, the cross is a wonderful symbol, a symbol that can be worn around our necks, on our wrists or whatever. It's a wonderful symbol, but it's far more than just a symbol. The cross is the place where the power of God is made known and his work for mankind is revealed. I know that on the day when Jesus died, when he was actually crucified, on that day, it looked like everything was lost. Jesus bows his head and he dies. And this, to some, this so-called saviour, this man that had been promising so much, he's dead. And at that moment, it looked like everything was lost. But we know three days later, the tomb where Jesus had been laid dead 
was empty because he had risen again and he had burst forth with glorious salvation. The cross has power. Sin and death were now defeated and victory is proclaimed through the cross. The only problem is, you know, when coming to church, for many of you, this is not the first time that you have heard this news. And you know what? When it's not the first time, there's a degree of familiarity that comes with the language, with some of the terms, with the story. There's a familiarity with it. And so therefore, in some sense, we oh yeah, I know that. And we therefore lose the wonder of what the cross is. Certainly my prayer is, not only for myself, but for all of us, that God would reveal more to us, that he would awaken us and establish us in the truth of the cross, that the power of it would be a wonder to us each and every day, causing us to arise with true celebration and thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done for us. And today, I just want to look at two other important words that reveal what happened on the cross. Now, this is not designed to be a theology lesson from the point of view like, oh, if we learn these words, then, wow, that's it. You know, we really reach somewhere. The truth is, as we talk about these words, we just want to gain some greater understanding. You know, the more understanding that we have of what God has done for us and what these various terms about the cross and uh, theology mean, then little by little that information grows within us and as it grows it helps to establish our faith and our confidence in God. So that is why we want to look at these words. So today we're going to look firstly at, uh, at, if I can say it, redemption and justification. Redemption and and justification. Let me start with some definitions. Redemption means this, it's an act of redeeming or atoning for a fault or a mistake. It's a deliverance and theologically it's a deliverance from sin, it's salvation. Justification means to declare innocent or guilty, guiltless. To, I'll say that again because that was stupid to say it like that. Justification means to declare innocent or guiltless, to absolve, to acquit. Redemption, let's look at that first. What is redemption? Now the word redemption is frequently used in the Old and in the New Testament. And Luke in his gospel uh, notes what John the Baptist's father Zachariah said. Luke 1 verse 68. Zachariah said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, Because he has visited and redeemed his people. Because he has visited and redeemed his people. Now the Greek word that is used for redeemed is lytrosis. And it has a literal meaning of ransoming, a deliverance, a rescue. And that is exactly what Jesus has done by going to the cross. Paul says this in Romans 5 verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? When Paul says that we are saved from God's wrath, he shows that it was by Jesus' shed blood, his death, that we are not only redeemed, but we are rescued. We are redeemed. We were justified by this blood that Jesus shed. And Paul goes on to say, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Can you see that part of the power of the cross is that a 
transaction, an exchange takes place. My sin, my guilt, my shame, my wrong is taken by Jesus and his righteous life, his purity, his holiness, his cleansing, his release is being given to me. That is an exchange like no other exchange. It's an exchange that transforms our lives, literally. Now last week, if you were here, or even if you watched online, I referred to the story of Maximilian Kolbe and how he had given his life, literally given his life in the place of Francis Gavonovich. Can you imagine, or I was thinking about this, what must it have been like for Francis at that moment when somebody steps in and says, I will die in place of you? What, what, what was going through his mind? I was thinking, well, he must have been happy, and yet instantly he must have felt slightly guilty at the same time. Because you think, oh, wow, this isn't fair. He must have been amazed, and yet also slightly ashamed that he wasn't going through, that somebody else was taking his place. He must have been confused about it all, and yet inside he had freedom. So there's this conflicting uh, sort of things that would have gone through Francis's life, I'm quite sure. But one thing he recognized, an exchange had taken place. His life had been exchanged for somebody else's life. So now Francis was a free to live, while Maximilian went to give his life up. For us, a great exchange happens at the cross. Our sin is exchanged for the righteousness of God. That is a great exchange. But when we talk about the cross and being saved, what are we being saved from? Was it our sins? Well, yes, we're saved from our sins. I've just been saying that. Was it hell? Well, yes, we are. We're saved from an eternity in hell. But primarily, we were actually saved, rescued from God's wrath. God's wrath was against us because of our sin, and it is actually the wrath of God that has been taken away. That has been removed, and that is what we are saved from, and that's what Jesus has done. So redemption has the idea of being delivered from the wrath of God. Now, having said that, there's another angle to redemption as well. Redemption is a word, as I say, used in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's a number of Hebrew root words that are used for redemption. They are parda, gala, and kappa. Now, I've probably said that wrong, but for the sake of carrying on and for the sake of the fact that neither you or I are Hebrew scholars, we'll just move on. The verb parda is a legal term concerning the substitution required for a person or an animal to be delivered. The verb gal is a legal term for the deliverance of some person, property, or right to which one had a previous claim through family relationship or possession. And the meaning of carpa is to cover. So in a sense, the, the sense behind these Hebrew words, again, is that of freedom. Freedom from bondage, a sense of deliverance. But there's also just a slightly stronger emphasis here. It's not just freedom from. To gain that freedom, a price had to be paid. That's the sense in the Hebrew. So redemption as a word, it's a word that's used in terms of payment. A payment is made to enable 
somebody else to be released. It was particularly used, for instance, of prisoners of war. So people have been captured. Your people have been captured by the enemy. But to get your people back to redeem them, you had to pay money so that they would release the prisoners of war. And again, in a slave market, that sense where somebody is in the hands of a master, that's their owner, and you have to pay the owner to gain release of that slave from their captivity. To gain release, a price has to be paid. And that is the sense behind redemption in the Old Testament. And Paul reminds us of this in the New Testament, where he says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought at a price. You were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God with your body. And in Revelation 5 verse 9 we read, you are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain, and listen to this, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. We know what it is to buy things, Do you remember the days when you used to use coins and cash? It's not so much now. I mean, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's dropped hugely. I don't actually seem to carry any cash now because we're just using credit cards or we're using, we tap in. You just tap in up to a certain amount and all you've done is tap and that's it. You get your goods in exchange for that simple tap. Listen, what we're reading here is in Revelation, we're reading what Jesus has done. His transaction was to pay with his life, with your blood you purchased for God, persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. This purchase and transaction has been made. The deal has been done. Jesus has bought you for God. And that means he himself has a right to us. He's purchased us. We're owned by God. Not by Satan, not by the world, not even by ourselves. But God, we belong to him because he purchased us. It is through the cross that we find redemption. It's through the cross that we're also justified. So this word justified, and I know it's another one of these theological terms, but to simply put, to justify is to declare righteous, to make one right with God. To justify is to declare righteous, to make one right with God. Justification is God's declaring those who receive Christ to be righteous, based on Christ's righteousness being given, being imputed to the account of those who receive him. That's what it is. When I was young, and I This is a long, distant memory. I remember being at church and actually being given a little book which only had a few pages. And as you open up this booklet, it only had colors. It had colors like this. That was the first page, black. That was the next page, red. That's the next page, white. Actually, I haven't put out, there was the last page which was gold, but I won't go into that, that's another bit. And so I had this little book, and we had a chorus that went alongside this book. And the chorus was this, My heart was black with sin until the Savior came in. And of course, the blood of Jesus is cleansing us. His precious blood, I know, has made me white as snow. 
And that simple booklet actually tells the story of what has happened. Sin stains. There's a blackness in that stain. There's something that corrupts, as it were. But the blood of Jesus washes our hearts so that we are clean. And there's that image of the image that we can have of, of the snow. When suddenly snow comes and everything that was grubby and dirty, when the snow just lands, everything is pure white. And it's beautiful. And that's an image that we have. And that is what happens when we're justified. We were stained with sin, but now we have been made right with God. When you put your faith in Jesus, the fact that he died on the cross for you, then God declares you to be righteous, to be right with him, because Jesus has taken the punishment that was due for your sin, and you are justified, you are made right with God. So, redemption and justification. These words that have lots of meaning about the cross. But in the light of these sorts of things and the work of the cross, we've got to ask this question. How should we then live? How should we then live? Hebrews 2 verses 1 to 3 says this. So we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard or we may drift away from it. For the message God delivered through angels has always stood firm and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. So what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak? Our first thing about how we should live is this. Firstly, we need to act upon it. We need to act upon it. We've been told about salvation that's been made available at the cross. We've been told what Jesus has done at the cross. We've been told of the release that is found at the cross. But unless we do something about it, that's where it stays. We have to go to the cross. We have to receive this salvation that is being offered. We need to act upon what is being done at the cross. Acts 16, verses 30 to 31, the jailer in the Philippi jail, when he was talking with Paul and Silas, he says to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? In effect, he's saying, like, what must I do? I've heard about some of the things you're talking about. What must I do? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And in Romans 10, 9 and 10, and then 12 and 13, it says this. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Look, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We need to act upon it. Secondly, we need to walk in it. When you are saved, you are born again. You are a new creation. When you are saved, you are born again. Something happens. Now, sometimes you almost feel it. Sometimes I've just made a prayer. I've asked Jesus. I'm trusting Jesus. And it would seem like 
possibly nothing has happened. But spiritually, you have become born again. A massive change has happened. That transaction that we talked about earlier has occurred. This has happened. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We have been made new, and therefore we need to start walking in the new life that we have been given. Things have changed. Well, what is that way of life? And you know what? That's not a foolish question for anybody to ask, because suddenly we've been taken out of darkness, we've been put into light, and there's a sense in which like, well, actually, I'm not quite sure what I should be doing here. There's a whole new thing that's going on, and that's what we need to get used to. So it's a good question to ask, which way should I live? How should I behave? What things are going to happen to me now? And you know what? We look at an Acts. What happened to the first believers? What did they do when they had first come to know Jesus? What steps did they take? Acts 2 verse 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So in other words, once they had taken this step of saying, I'm believing in Jesus, they then needed to add something to it. They needed to walk in the way of the new life. And that was walking with other Christians, learning the ways of God from them, reading the Bible, sharing uh, faith and life with one another, praying. These are all things that need to happen to help us to walk in the new life. It's not automatic. This is not just a a software download. Oh, let's just get an upgrade so you've now gone to a different thing. This is learning to walk in a new way of life. And we have to do that. We need to act upon it because Jesus has called us to him. So we're acting upon the salvation that we've been given. We're taking Jesus as our Savior. And now we're seeking to walk in the new life that he has for us. And thirdly, we need to hand over all control. I'll repeat that. We need to hand over all control. When I started driving, which was a reasonably interesting experience, that I had a car, which I think many of them do these days, with dual control, a dual control car. Now, the idea of that is you're sitting in the driver's seat now learning to drive, but it means your instructor still maintains some control. So if he thinks like, oh, I don't like the way this is going, he can slam on the brakes. And so he can bring the car to a stop regardless of what you're doing. The dual control means that he's seeking to make sure I'm keeping my car safe. But you see, the thing is, in our lives, that's how we often try to live. I'm going to live with dual control. God, you're free to sit in the driver's seat. You're free to do whatever. Hang on, I don't like the way this is going. And we're putting the brakes on. We're suddenly saying, no, 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 I don't want to go that way. Dual control is not what we're talking about. We're talking about surrendering our lives to God. Now these days, more and more in the press, and it's a bit negative in the press, what we're coming into is driver-less cars. And you see that one crashes here, or they're testing one out, and it hits a police car, and all sorts of embarrassment. They're still getting it right. But the idea is that we're moving to driver-less cars. Now, driver-less cars is much more what we're talking about. Why? Because what we're saying is, I'm trusting the vehicle to take me, and I'm just going to sit there and let it happen. Now, I don't know how you feel about that. If it's, oh, hang on a second. Does this car know where it's going? Does it know what it's doing? But you see, this is what we're like in our Christian lives. 
we're actually getting to the place where we're saying, like, we're in a driverless car. Well, not a driverless, it's that the, the driver is Jesus. And we're saying to him, you can lead us. You can take us in the way that you want to go. You know, in Psalm, I think it's in Psalm, Psalm 32, verse 9, it says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you are to go. I will counsel you and watch over you. That's what God says. That's the instruction. We're supposed to be sitting down and saying, God, I'll allow you to do what you have said you will do. Handing over control of our lives. If we're going to walk in the way of the cross and in the power of the cross, then we have to receive the salvation that is offered to us. We have to walk in the new way of that life. We've become new creations. Now there's a new life for us to walk in. We're forgetting the old. We're taking hold of the new. One is behind us. The other is before us. We're walking in that. And for us to walk fully in that, we need to surrender ourselves and allow God to have His authority. Receive the salvation that the cross offers Walk in the new life that the cross brings and allow God to have his way, which is literally bringing the cross into our lives. We want to thank God for the power of the cross and all that it does for us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bromley Town Church. You are always welcome to visit us on a Sunday morning. Or join us again for more messages here online. You can also stay connected with us at www.bromleytownchurch.com.